0: Hi everyone! So today I am answering the anonymous questions from my abnormal psychology class that are um, from the second round of uh, anonymous questions that I put out um, to the students. So the first two um, episodes in this series that I posted uh, a few days ago are um from that first round of anonymous questions from earlier in the summer session and this is from a more recent section that that closed rather recently so let's go ahead and get started okay first question when it comes to ocd can that ever be cured i know that it can be managed with medication but is there ever a permanent fix to the disorder if so what would that be all right, so um, medications do help with obsessive compulsive disorder. Now, remember when, we, when we're talking about obsessive compulsive disorder, we're talking about people who have obsessions um, and then compulsions that they kind of act on to get rid of the obsessions. Now, typically this is not someone who likes to keep things clean or neat. That's more um, either normal or if it interferes with their life, maybe it could meet criteria for obsessive compulsive personality disorder. What we're talking about here is obsessive compulsive disorder and this is where um someone has obsessions like um for example a fear that uh, maybe a family member will be injured um and once they have that fear they find that the way to get rid of it is to say a certain prayer over and over or to count to a certain number repeatedly or to organize things to exert control over it somehow now most people with ocd recognize that these things are not um rational, but they know that, that probably what they do probably doesn't affect things. So if they have that obsession with, you know, relative getting sick or dying, they know that organizing uh, their pantry is not going to fix that. They understand that's probably not um, going to help, but then often they'll tell you things like, but what if, what if there's a point oh 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 one percent chance that somehow these things are connected? I can't, not do that for my relative who I'm afraid of dying. So they they recognize that there's some uh, strange thinking there, but often they can't kind of step outside of it and stop themselves from engaging in those compulsions. Um, And so what we do for that, medications help, um, but the um, best gold standard for treatment is called uh, exposure with response prevention. And if you listen to my previous episodes, you know that I'm a big fan of exposure therapy. Um, and that the research kind of supports that any anxiety-related disorder can really benefit from some type of exposure component. Um, And so in this case, we might have the patient engage in the um, obsession. So sit there and think about their relative dying and, and spend the time with that, but then help them to stop from engaging in the compulsion. So you know, we can do this in a therapy room, have someone think about their relative dying, have the normal thoughts that they have, and then realize that they can be with those thoughts without, um, without them, without needing to engage in the compulsion to get rid of them. That sometimes they go on their own, and so eventually they learn um, through this process of repeating exposure over and over and over again, and sometimes even making it more challenging, um, etc. You know, exposure therapy is very nuanced and complicated. So I'm not doing it justice. I'm giving a single example of what a single technique in a single session would look like. But imagine repeating that for various problems, various triggers, um, until you kind of extinguish that behavior so the person can have whatever thoughts they have without engaging in the compulsion. So in that sense, when they no longer engage in the compulsion, I would say that OCD is cured. But someone who's experiencing OCD may need to keep an eye on themselves and be cautious that they might not developed other obsessions and compulsions, to know the signs that they might be doing that and to engage in exposure very readily in order to keep it from happening again. So I would say it's cured, even if the person has to be attentive to it um, to make sure that it stays that way. And I would argue it's the same way with lots of different issues, lots of different mental and physical health issues. For example, if um, uh, let's say we, ha- uh, we are overweight or are in the obese range, if we go ahead and lose weight, then we no longer have obesity, right? But we probably need to keep an eye on it to make sure we don't fall into old eating and physical activity habits that, that cause us to gain back weight. Same thing with a mental health issue. If we had if we had an experience of depression or an anxiety disorder or something like that, then when we find the ways to work through it, maybe with therapy, we combine that with medication, however we do that, um, you know we may have to it's not just gone forever we need to be cautious with how we live our lives to make sure that these things stay away so i would consider that cured um maybe the bi- the biological predisposition doesn't go away but i would say if the symptoms aren't there then neither is the problem and therefore i would consider it cured next question how do you know when you should th- seek therapy for something for example how do you know if something is worth getting help for or if it is something that will pass? Hmm. Um, very good question. Um, personally, my personal answer to this, if there's something that bothers you about yourself and you want to change it, then it's worth seeking therapy for. Now, I say that in an ideal world, um, in the world that we actually live in, there are not a lot of therapy resources out there. We can, They're there, but they can be hard to contact. And in some cases they're expensive, but usually they're not too bad if you have some level of means. Um, so I would say if there's something that you want to change about yourself or about your life, it's worth seeking help for it. Usually through therapy, um, but also, you know, in combination with medication. But remember, medication is going to help you get through a period of time when symptoms are bad so you can engage in the changes, whether with therapy or without, you engage in the changes that really give you long-term health. Um, how do you know if it's something that will pass? Well, I guess you can kind of wait, <laughs> but <clears throat> I would say the period of time that you would wait uh, would be about two weeks to a month. So if you're feeling depressed or down, for its, for example, um, and that's lasting two weeks or more, it's starting to become something you might want to get some help for. Maybe give it another two weeks to see if you can make some changes to your life that will improve it and stave it off. Um, But if not, then I would suggest getting help for it. And that's usually a lot of our diagnostic criteria are like that. So for depression, it's depressed mood, more days, um, most of the day, nearly every day for two weeks or more. Um, For a lot of the anxiety disorders, it's it's very similar um, and those kind of things that might be a short fuse. I think if, if you go two weeks and then you set an appointment, you're probably not going to see that person for another, you know, few weeks, maybe depending on what kind of opening they have. So it'll give you some time to really see if it's something you want to kind of seek help for, um, or not. I'd say an exception to that is bereavement. Um, you know, if we have a, a, a loved one, um, uh, dies, then I think that, you know, the normal grieving process is different for everybody and it can take some time. If it if that grieving process really starts to interfere with your life, then seek help. But if it's something where you're feeling bad all the time, you're thinking about them a lot, uh, you're feeling sad when you think about them, I mean, that's the grieving process. Now, again, if it's really starts to interfere, then that's a good thing to get some help with. Um, grief therapy is you know, really helpful to have someone to talk to about it to help to kind of set goals for keeping your life on the rails while you're grieving I think can be really helpful so if you're struggling um with that where it's starting to interfere with your life I it's, say it's good to seek help um but um otherwise I mean you've got to give yourself that period to mourn um and to feel those negative feelings and to probably be down for a bit um but if you don't feel yourself climbing starting to climb out of that having positive memories of this relative and 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 you know, kind of helping yourself to kind of um, again keep your life on the rails. Um, if that's not happening, then I say it's it's good to um, to seek help. Good question there. I think that's a an individual question that that we need to ask ourselves when we're struggling. Um, is there an end in sight? If there's a big stressor and that stressor is going to end and I can conquer it, then maybe I just have to wait until that stressor's done or conquered or over. Um, but if it's going to be a while before that happens, or if I'm really distraught and I don't see an end in sight, then I think it's worth getting help then, than waiting to see if it'll pass. Is a person with somatic symptom disorder the same as a hypochondriac? These are two separate things. So somatic symptom disorder is some, um, occurs, there describes someone who has a lot of um, somatic symptoms that they're very concerned with. So, maybe they may be very concerned with gastrointestinal symptoms and being very attentive to how their stomach feels, how they respond to what they eat, and that sort of thing, and probably seeking some health care um, because of that. They tend to have um, or report more um, significant somatic symptoms. So, they experience their somatic symptoms more strongly. Um, the so the question asked, uh, same as a hypochondriac, we don't really use that term anymore. Um, we, uh, the new term is someone with illness anxiety disorder. An illness anxiety disorder is a fear that, that someone is someone has a fear that they're developing uh, a certain illness. Uh, usually, their symptoms are pretty mild, but they tend to interpret their physical symptoms as uh, something that is very negative or or um problematic. So if they have some tightness in their chest, they may interpret that as a heart attack and maybe seek, you know, seek treatment for that and want someone to see, you know, want to be tested to see if they had a heart attack and things like that. Um, even though in reality the symptoms will be much more severe. So they tend to interpret mild symptoms as something that is more severe, someone with illness anxiety disorder. Uh, there is some overlap there. I mean, I, I actually had to cheat a little bit and go look uh, look this one up to really find out what differentiates, to really remind myself what differentiates them. Um, and there, there are some similarities there in terms of people kind of seeking uh, more uh, healthcare and health-related things. But with somatic symptom disorder, people are more focused on the symptoms that they're having, and they tend to report them as more severe or tend to. Um, someone with illness anxiety disorder is more concerned about, um, they tend to report, I think I have this illness and, and that sort of thing. all right what's my next question so this might be a weird question Oh, i love these ones but as someone who hopes to go into medicine i have never really been interested in a career like psychiatry because i would be worried working with patients with psychiatric disorders would take a toll on my own mental health since i tend to internalize a lot from others i realize everyone is different but i was wondering if you've ever experienced this in your career as a psychologist um i think yes but i don't think this is something that is unique to psychiatry or psychology. Um, reminder, uh, psychiatrists are folks who are um, physicians, so they get their MD, and then they specialize mostly in um, how to prescribe medications for mental health issues. And they tend to work with folks uh, with the more severe and, and heavy biological component mental health issues, like schizophrenia and things like that, much more so than psychologists do, although that of course varies depending on setting and all, all those kinds of things. Oh, anyway, to go back to this question, um, I don't think that uh, this is unique to psychologists, psychiatrists, or any healthcare provider, or anyone in kind of a caring profession. Is that you know we tend to take our patients home with us mentally. We tend to think about them and wonder how they're doing and hope that they're doing well. Um, and we tend to be kind of scared for them and frustrated for them and 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 that sort of thing. Um, No matter what profession you're in, especially if you're in psychiatry or psychology, we get specified training in how to basically not separate ourselves from that, like we don't care, but to kind of leave those concerns at work and to um, kind of take care of ourselves in order so we can take good care of our patients. Um, And so we do have to be um, attentive to our own mental health, attentive to the effects of um, working with people who are really struggling um, on our health, but I don't think that's unique to psychiatry or psychology. I don't think it's unique to working with people with mental health, with, who are presenting for mental health concerns. You know, if I was a cardiac surgeon, I would worry uh, about my patients um, post-surgery and hoping that they are taking care of themselves, that they're um, living well, that they're happy, that they're recovering well. Um, you know, those things would weigh on me just as much as I, you know, it weighs on me to think about my patients with uh, depression or an anxiety disorder and wanting them to be doing well and improving and hoping that they're, you know, implementing the skills we talked about between session and things like that. Um, so I think any healthcare profession, there is that um, we have to have that ability and we, this is a learned ability. You don't have it naturally. We have to learn to be able to kind of see people and care for them and work with sometimes with the despair that happens when it doesn't seem like our patients are getting better no matter how how hard we try and not to give into that despair and keep trying to help them improve no matter how daunting that might be great question how do you think that famous actors actresses that have that have to make drastic changes to their lives deal with the change for example actors actresses that are involved in psychological movies such as the joker uh, joaquin phoenix had to make a drastic change to his body in order to become the character do you think that they have professional psychologists who work with them while dealing with the change Um, I don't know if they have professional psychologists who help them deal with the change. I imagine they have someone who coaches them through the mental pieces of that. I don't know if any of those people are actually kind of trained in that or if they just have kind of learned by working with other uh, actors and actresses. Um, I know this question stumps me a little bit. I (laughs) really don't know um, uh, how to answer that. I think it depends. If I, let me put it this way. If I were in a situation where an actor or actress was working with me and they had to embrace embrace a role of someone who was um, not mentally healthy and they didn't want to bring any of that with them. Um, I would work with them on strategies to kind of switch roles and make sure that kind of the character doesn't bleed into their real life. And the ways I would do that is to help them develop a preparatory regimen. So if they're going to go and play this character, then, you know, they're going to have to get dressed and get makeup and get all these things. And I would help them to uh, develop some strategies. And we would do this together on what to do to transition to that character. So do they sit there quietly? Um, Is this a very, you know, dynamic and kinetic character? So do they need to like dance around and run around and move and get themselves really active and activated? Um, You know, it's something like that. It, It would all depend on the character, but help them to, you know, collaboratively come up with that and then practice those skills. Um, And then more importantly, have a practice of kind of moving back to, you know, making the full transition to who they are. Now these are not like taking on different personalities or anything like that. You're just changing their environment to kind of um, trick themselves into engaging in certain behavior. So for example, when I'm doing um, work online, if I'm meeting with someone uh, in t- a telepath therapy setting where I would normally meet with them in person s- and I would normally be, you know, dressed for work. I'd have a button up shirt. I don't usually wear ties, but I have a button up shirt and I, you know, tuck it in and all that stuff and wear khakis and maybe some shoes and whatever. Like I would actually be doing that in real life. So when I'm meeting with someone who, um, where that would be appropriate, I tend to dress that way even though I'm at home. And it seems silly, but I'm doing that because it puts me in that professional mindset. I don't think the clothes really matter, but it does put me in that professional mindset. If I'm still wearing my pajama pants and wearing a button-up shirt, then you know I might look professional to the person for all they know. But I'm, you know, I'm not fully in that kind of role. And so, with the case of actors and actresses, they're taking on roles that are much more extreme than what I'm doing. Um, and so I think that having things that help them transition back and forth so they don't bring any of the, uh, negative aspects of a character home, especially, I think would be helpful and useful. That's a great question. Next question. Why does schizophrenia typically affect males earlier than females? At least that's what I've been told, uh, it happens earlier. All right, so I had to go and look this one up. And in the DSM-5, they don't really say uh, anything about, they say that basically it depends on what group you study. Sometimes it looks like um, males experience more severe symptoms, sometimes it doesn't. And this is a very biologically driven disorder. You know, There's a lot of um, brain abnormalities for someone with schizophrenia. So when that happens, you tend to see a little more um, closer rates and things like that um, between men and women. What they think may be different, and the research is kind of out on this as I understand it, um, is that maybe men might have more um, externalizing and disruptive symptoms than women, but that's that's observed in other disorders, so I don't know if that's just something they're looking for here and haven't really found. So I don't really think that there's a big gender difference here um, in terms of that. When we do see, for something that's very biologically driven, when we do see gender differences, that's often because of chromosomal differences between men and women. Men are more vulnerable to traits that are on the X or Y chromosomes um, because men only have one X chromosome when women have two, by definition, um, at least when it comes to sex, not by definition with men and women, but for male and female, some pretty much by definition. Um, the So basically women have a backup copy of that X chromosome, uh, whereas men, do not since we only have one uh, and so that can lead to further to problems being more likely uh, in men if there's involvement of anything any proteins or anything that's coded from that x chromosome I don't think that's the case in schizophrenia though and from what i brief perusal of the dsm and the literature that doesn't seem to be the case Next question, there have been reports of people experiencing an increase in mental health issues since the start of quarantine. What is your take on this and why do you think this could be the case? I think I covered this a little bit in the previous episodes uh, indirectly, but it's nice to be able to cover it directly with this question. Uh, So I would say that the the big reason for this is due to a disruption in our normal routines. Um, Many of us develop lifestyles that are conducive to our mental health. We have a certain degree of exercise, certain degree of social interaction, uh, we work toward goals and we achieve them. These are good recipes for positive mental health. Um, unfortunately, the quarantine has interrupted a lot of that and we have all had to adjust. So I'm sure we all went through, even if people are doing very well right now, mental, mental health wise, I'm sure that everyone went through a period of adjustment where they had to figure out, okay, how do I get the social interaction I crave? Um, how do I do my work um, and things like that? Um, and that's in an ideal situation where we're just moving things to less in-person. Um, there are much, much less ideal situations, which is an understatement, of folks who have lost their job, have a lot of uncertainty about their future. All of these things are very potent stressors um, that can lead to mental health issues, especially along the depression and uh, anxiety disorder spectrum. So I've, I think that's why. I think it's definitely true. The surveys that we've been able to do during this time, not me personally, but that researchers and scientists have been able to do, um, have demonstrated that there is basically more mental health issues. But um, a lot of that is because of this change in our own personal environments and a lot of uncertainty in terms of work and career, um, health and safety and things like that. Next question, is there any way that in the future when learning about PTSD, we can learn about those who suffer from PTSD and were not military personnel? Oh, this is, this is a student asking about that uh, for the class. Um, yeah, we, t- you know, we do talk about this uh, in the class. This must've been before we really went into that chapter. We do talk a lot about military personnel um, when we talk about PTSD, but the same process is occurring uh, for folks who are not military personnel. So when people experience a traumatic event, um, and and have these kind of constellation of post traumatic stress disorder symptoms along with that. Um, that looks similar. In you know that the 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 way that the 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 PTSD works by itself is kind of independent of the type of trauma that occurred. So if someone was in a car accident or a physical or sexual assault occurs or something like that, you know there's avoidance of cues. Often there are um, cognitive symptoms of fear, there's hyperarousal, you know, however, PTSD can look slightly different for each person, but, you know, a lot of those symptoms tend to be present. Um, That tends to be similar, kind of irrespective to what the person is avoiding or afraid of. The function of their behavior is often quite similar. So, yeah, we do cover that in the course. Um, this person probably got that, like, later, like probably pretty soon after they submitted this question. Um, but uh, that part is similar. The challenging piece um, with PTSD um, and a lot of the exposure-based therapies is something called polytrauma. So we talk about PTSD a lot when it's, like, a single index trauma. Like, one thing happens, and that is the thing that that the PTSD symptoms kind of circle around. But if we think about, you know, repeated sexual abuse, or repeated um, uh, traumatic, fearful events, even natural disasters or something like that that are repeated and frequent, um, relatively, um, that becomes challenging um, because the person can have, you know, thoughts and behaviors associated with any with with different ones of those in different places, um, and it makes treatment a little more challenging because again, this is going to be some exposure-based treatments um, and getting exposure to memories of all these different traumatic events um, can be challenging of which one to choose and how to do it and and when to change to a different one in order to keep the exposure active and, and working, so. Next question. I've heard that in some cases of PTSD, Hypnotherapy can very be very useful. Do you agree with this method? Um, you know, I, I did some training in clinical hypnosis, um, and lots of people do use it if they have like training and background in it. Um, you know, I think at best it just greases the wheels for exposure-based therapies. Like it puts someone in a more um, relaxed and kind of receptive state. Uh, now, you know, in hypnotherapy, the person retains control over themselves um and they they retain they they retain their decision making you know we see you know hypnotists and stage hypnotists who look like they're taking control of people and making them do things you know put someone in a relaxed and receptive state so not gonna they have the agency to not do those things Um, that still remains with them and when it's used clinically um, we're all Uh, folks are very cautious about um, using it appropriately. I don't use it because I don't feel like it adds much and the research doesn't really support that it adds a whole lot. I would rather use um, empirically-based treatments that we know are the best empirically-based treatments, that being prolonged exposure and cognitive processing therapy. Both of those are exposure-based therapies. They're very good and very effective. So to me, there's no reason to bring something like like hypnosis into it um, because we already have these wonderful and very helpful and useful protocols that work. I mean, they've been compared head-to-head to other PTSD treatments and they come out on top. So, yeah, I, I don't think it's very useful, especially as a primary, um, a primary treatment. I would go with one of those two that I mentioned as the primary treatment um, because they're the most effective uh, components. Anything else that works just works because it has exposure in it. Next question: What do you think would be most beneficial for diagnosing those with mental disorders? Since the DSM five seems to not accurately capture how we how to diagnose that is consistent. Actually, the the DSM five. You know, um, in the class we go over the positives and the negatives of the DSM five, and this is the diagnostic manual that psychiatrists uh, create and that most mental health care providers use. Um, there are some the part of the testing that goes into the DSM-5, or at least into the DSM-4, the DSM-5 didn't do as good a job of this, but in the DSM-4 at least, um, there are studies of, um, for example, if I give, if I show one therapist a video of someone with a mental health issue and show another therapist the same video, they would then use the DSM to decide which disorders this person meets criteria for. There's in scientific studies that we do that involve lots of therapists, lots of videos, and we do this over and over and over again, um, and we calculate concordance rates. So how um, close in overlap between you know very well trained therapists there are in these diagnoses, and they don't really make it into the DSM unless they're pretty decent most of the time. There's been some controversy around this one, but I won't get into that. Uh, the ones that really stink are generalized anxiety disorders real bad. Like I think it has like a 50% concordance rate or something like that, where there's like basically a coin flip of if you show me a video, will I diagnose it accurately as GAD and then show one of my friends and colleagues a video and would they give the same diagnosis? There's like a 50, 50 chance. That's really bad. That means it's a, not a very good one. Um, it captures something important and unique, but it's still, it just needs so much work. Um, and then DSM-5 they tried to change the criteria to make it better and they actually ended up making it worse um, to where the concordance rates were lower um, with the changes they made. So they had to scrap it and kept it how it has been for years. Um, So again, that's one we're working on, but um, there is, you know, it, it we don't have a good alternative and it is reasonably consistent um, in, in that it's uh, a helpful and useful rubric to use, but keep in mind, I mean, these are just, um, a description of symptoms that we use as a label so that we can then communicate with each other. So I can talk to a patient about what depression is and see if that's consistent with what they're experiencing. And also I can go consult the empirical literature on depression and I have a group of articles and books and myriad articles and books and things like and treatment manuals to read and use um, with my patient. So it's a tool. It's not meant to be a diagnosis um, in the sense that it um, label someone for life or anything like that so if it's used appropriately then any inconsistency isn't that important it's just one piece of the puzzle in figuring out how best to treat and help and work with someone next question are there certain criteria or aspects of someone's life that brings on somatic symptom disorder why do all of a sudden why do they all of a sudden start to experience troubles with their physical well-being Um, Yeah, I mean, we have some ideas of this. Um, People, um, I think a lot of times observe other folks um, having something negative happen to them because of a physical symptom. Um, So for example, let's say they have a family member who ignores uh, a stomach pain for a while saying it's nothing. um, And then they find out that they have some kind of stomach tumor or something like that. Super rare for that to happen, right? More than likely, if there's something wrong with our stomach, it's indigestion. It's Taco Bell, or it's something—not to dis Taco Bell, but it's something that is affecting our, our GI. Um, it's probably not a tumor. Uh, so the, but then in seeing that, people misunderstand and misestimate the probability of that, and that can lead them down a rabbit hole. Of I mean, just get on the internet, and it sounds like you know if you type in stomach ache, it leads you through like oh indigestion, this that then it's like ulcers, cancer, Crohn's disease, all these other things that it could be. And people who maybe have a little bit of a predisposition maybe due to their experiences in the past or, or things like that or some of their concerns about health, people who have a predisposition tend to cling to those things more. Um, and then that can then spin out of control and become a cycle that kind of looks then, looks like somatic symptom disorder. So it doesn't really start all of a sudden. Uh, as the question asks, it it may seem that way because they start expressing their concerns all of a sudden, but really it's something that's been kind of um, percolating for a long period of time. It's a pattern of thinking and a pattern of behavior, um, mostly health seek, healthcare seeking behaviors, pattern of exp- of thinking and a pattern of behavior, and none of those come out of nowhere. Those come due to someone's experience and how they've responded to those experiences, um, until it becomes a, a maladaptive and problematic behavior pattern. one more question in this episode and then I will pause and and do the rest of the questions in the next episode. So if a person was to go see a therapist about depression slash anxiety and discuss traumatic events that led up to them being depressed or anxious, would a therapist conclude that they have PTSD even if the events have already happened? Would they still be able to make that diagnosis or would they have had to talk someone when it happened Uh, so most of the time just to to spell a misconception to start most of the time ptsd is diagnosed some period of time after the traumatic event usually three to six months at least after the traumatic event because lots of people experience traumatic events lots of people get in car accidents unfortunately lots of people get sexually assaulted um, or physically assaulted various other terrible things happen to people all the time but the rates of ptsd are not anywhere close to the rates of these events that we call traumatic events when we say it's a traumatic event that just means it could be certainly no one would say it was something good that happened to them they would say it's the negative experience but they don't all result in ptsd and the reason is that a lot of people um have the resources and the ability and they to push to um I want to say get over but to move past these things to where it's just a bad thing that happened they don't necessarily enjoy thinking about but it's not influencing their life in the present when someone is experiencing ptsd then that event that happened in the past is influencing them in the present mostly through their memories so they have intrusive memories intrusive thoughts they start trying to get rid of them so they start avoiding things Um, Their physiology is very responsive to it. They're hypervigilant. They're cautious. They start to do things to try to control those thoughts about that thing that happened in the past. So that's PTSD. Um, And so right after an event is actually not the time to either diagnose or try to intervene on PTSD. The best thing to do is help people to get contact with the social support that they have around them to take care of any thing they need to take care of um, regarding the aftermath of what happened, be it a car accident, for example, you know, helping them to, to, to work through all the logistics of getting their car replaced, talking to insurance and all those kind of things to help them get through all that. Then after that's finished, when things are back to quote unquote normal, um, that's the time to see how someone feels about that and if they're experiencing PTSD symptoms. And again, like it could even happen years later, you know, they get into another car accident and the the accumulation of this is what causes the problems. Now, notice I said that after a, a, an event that could be traumatic, you know, depends on someone's resources, how they might. And I, when I say resources, I mean that very broadly. Um, I mean, in terms of what kind of resources they have to deal with the situation, for example, insurance, blah, blah, blah. Um, But also what resources they have in terms of their ability to to, um, uh, work through negative things that happen to them. So if this is someone who's experienced a few negative things in the past and they've been able to overcome it, then this is just another one and they can overcome it and work through it. Um, On the flip side, if it's someone who's experienced so many negative things that this is just the straw that breaks the camel's back and it's just an accumulation of stress. I'm, I'm giving so many different scenarios because everyone is different, you know, everyone with PTSD has experienced a slightly different trauma or traumas. Um, Everyone has responded differently and it has not worked for them for various different reasons. Um, Some people may just be born more physiologically reactive, their heart rate and blood pressure spike more strongly in response to stress. Um, And so they might be more likely to develop um, PTSD because their body reacts so strongly even to the memories. Um, and they want to get rid of that, so they try to start avoiding things that remind them of the of the trauma in order to keep their physiology um, down and comfortable. That's not an adaptive response, but it's a perfectly normal and understandable response. So, um, so yeah, usually people are diagnosed uh, at a later time. The first part of this question I really like because you know if the person goes to see a therapist about depression anxiety. And they discuss a tra- specific traumatic event. Um, would the therapist conclude they have PTSD? Not necessarily, because again, that just because it's an event that we call it, we call a traumatic event, doesn't mean it cause it causes PTSD or the person has symptoms consistent with PTSD. So unless they have symptoms consistent with PTSD, um, we would not um, consider that diagnosis. But even if we do, so let's say the person meets criteria for depression and they meet criteria for um, PTSD. Well, then the question becomes as a therapist, which one do we work on? Cause we can't work on everything all at once. Um, and so we have to choose. And a lot of times the, you know, the first thing we do is talk to the client, like which, which is, which is interfering with your life more now. Is it you know, feeling down and depressed and, and, and out of sorts and tired and, and worthless and that, or is it, you know, these intrusive memories and thoughts about what happened to you? Um, you know, and so we tend to kind of focus more. We, we don't kind of exclude one, but we do focus more on one of the other um, at different times in treatment to try to uh, help get folks to the point where they feel like they can attack the other one. So, for example, if the biggest thing for the person is that they haven't left their house in a month not due to COVID um, because they uh, don't feel energized and that sort of thing, we might work on depression first. Um, And then as the person starts to feel more energized and can move and, and, and starts to live their life a little bit more, then we might have to work on barriers that are caused by PTSD and avoidance of reminders of the trauma and things like that, in order to improve their life in that way. Um, And we may have to shift the focus back and forth in order to get the person functioning in the way that they would want. So again, that's going to be different for every patient based on what they want, what they're willing to work on, you know, and, and that sort of thing great question. All right. Well, let me wrap up this episode. I'll get the next episode uh, prepped and ready and go through the rest of these questions. I hope you enjoy this. And if you're one of my students, uh, you know, ask me in class. If you are not one of my students, then feel free to comment on our website, DoHealthyBeHealthy.com and ask me additional questions. I'd be happy to answer them to the best of my ability.